0: It. And it is in the name of Jesus we get this Father, thank you for your love for us, for just how approachable you are. And so, God, we come before you this morning with boldness and great expectation because of the powerful name of Jesus. God, we ask that not only would we realize that you are here with us, but we would experience you this morning in a real way. this morning. Stephanie you can start and stop a song anytime you want if you promise to sing like that. <laughs> Amen. Amen. <laughs> I am grateful for those who have that gift and I am not one of them and you are grateful for that I promise you. Hey uh, I want to do something just a touch different this morning but you know I enjoy a little fun and a little laughter but you know, I invited our community to come out this morning. I invited the church to come out this morning. I ask you to bring your prayer requests, bring your bring your heart, your hurts, your fears, your shames, your anxieties, all those things that are just part of the human condition. And I, I did that because in my research this for this sermon this week, I just really felt a lot of things that were happening in the world uh, regarding just the choices and the decisions we've been faced with. For the last couple of years, it just seems a little harder it just seems like the the balance is off, and the consequences are, are 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 different, and the unknown is out there, and it's it's just rattling in our brain. And so, before we get too deep into that, I thought maybe just a, a little laughter might be uh, appropriate if, if if you would indulge me. If you want to indulge me, just cover your ears, you know. So, uh, I want to show you a couple of things. Like this, this is one of the, the my favorite things. The microwave is faster, but the oven makes it taste better. Do, do you have those decisions? I have found cooking for two. This is a true statement. Like this is the fifth gospel in in our in our house, right? Uh, it's just just faster, but it just doesn't taste the same, right? Well, what about what about this one right here? Same lady, she's having some troubles. Uh, I, I had a right. Let that soak in for just a moment, right? Chicken or egg, which is it, right? Uh, for those of us who believe the scripture to be true, the chicken came first, okay. This one will strike a nerve. What about this one? <laughs> this is the chaos and the entropy of Sunday morning after church, right? And and and, and it, you could even go back to microwave or oven for this choice, <laughs> or you could go to the place where, no, we ate there yesterday, or we ate there, or we got bad service, or whatever. I, you know, this is it right here. This is the entropy that we all have, right? Meanwhile we're all turning into bones. What about this one right here? Oh, I had a boss years ago that used to tell me that the only thing worse than a bad decision was no decision whatsoever. And we can fix bad decisions. We, we really can. We can, we, we, we can own them. We can deal with them. We can move forward. We can fix bad decisions. But we can't fix no decisions. And in the process of no decision, we're making a decision and one of the things that we've diagnosed as of late uh, especially the American Medical Society back in 2019 actually really kind of started coming out with this and I know there's a new diagnosis for everything anymore but but it's it's decision fatigue and and I think that we're really kind of dealing with this ideal of decision fatigue and it, it looks a little bit like I've made decisions, I've made choices all day long, and the first thing I want to do when I come home is not make any decisions. In, in fact, um, just a little marital tip for some of you, it may be the worst thing in the world for you to do when your spouse returns home from work is to ask them to make a decision. You might be better off having already made a decision and dealing with the fallout of that decision than asking someone to make a another decision especially if they've had some downtime, right like i made decisions all day and then i had to drive home and then I'm, i'm right back to making decisions it is what irritates kids and parents sometimes too wives you ever say this to your kids dad just needs five minutes he just walked in the door now i want you to know that that is negated with wait till your father comes home okay you want to know why kids are so messed up. It's, it's statements like that right there. Part of decision fatigue also looks like I just want to come home and just lay down on the couch and just bury my face in it and make no choices whatsoever. It's this vacillating back and forth between what is good, what is right, what is equitable, what is easy, what is simple, what is doable, what is not doable, what's costly, what's not costly, How do I make this decision? What's the fallout of that decision? What's the return on that? What's the the consequence of that? How much is this going to cost me if I make it now, if I don't make it now? What's really the bad deal about not making a decision whatsoever? What happens if I make this decision and change my mind later? What happens if I make this decision and somebody else asks a question about it or challenges about it or they don't know anything that I've gone through to make all these decisions and then they just criticize it the entire time? What do I do? What do I do? You know what? The best thing to do is just not make any decisions at all. Am I the only one who feels this way? You should be in ministry. Angelo and I cry about this all the time. Hey, I've got an ideal. All right, in six months from now, let's give it to the church. All right? We plan, we think, we, we we research, we do all this other stuff, we give it to the church, and it's like, what are you doing changing stuff? Just all of a sudden, pastor, you've got this whim on things, and you're changing I'm like, no, dude, I've been, I've been decision-fatigued for six months. And this is a return, right? Now, that's not universal to ministry by the way i think that's universal people but we're fatigued by all the decisions have you ever experienced decision fatigue i know that you have i know that you do i know you do in so many areas of your life and i want to share with you this morning that good bad or indifferent we are all accountable for the decisions that we make Good, bad, or indifferent, we are all accountable for the decisions that we make. And, and I, I think I think that's something that is really challenging in a, a, a day and time where it's easy and quick to point the finger, to blame someone else, to not take responsibility for our own actions, to give someone else some measure of authority to make decisions regarding your life but not respecting that authority and then having the responsibility that comes from having made that decision look it's hard to make decisions that impact other people's lives but you do it every single day in a variety of different ways and some of them are a little easier than others some of them are a little bit more challenging I'd shared with somebody uh, last week about uh, when I had a lot of employees that used to it was a lot easier to fire somebody you know but now as I got a little older and I've got some responsibilities under my belt, I, I kind of look back at some of those decisions that I made and go, man, that, that was a little, that, that was harsh. Like that dude had a family. And I didn't take that into consideration. I just looked at the black and the white. You broke the rules. You're out. Now, I'm not saying I was wrong for that, but it, it's different. And those things make a little bit of weight on you, right? They start impacting how you live your life. But right, wrong, or indifferent, we're all accountable for the decisions we make. And that includes not making decisions. But I think all of us have been in a situation where people have looked at us, or you have looked at someone in authority, and what you've realized is this vacillating that they do begins to break down a little bit, and you stop trusting their decisions because they're just yes today and no tomorrow. And they take back, or they change their mind, or worse than anything, I'll get back to you on that, and never get back to you on that. By the way, we all do that, every one of us on some level or another. So if you're thinking of someone right now in your life that does that, would would you just extend a little grace to them? Because God bless them, you don't know what else is going on in their world. That's not an excuse not to make decisions because they're accountable for the decisions they make, right, wrong, or indifferent. But I'd likewise like to tell you that the best decision you can ever make is to trust in the Lord. Let me say, the best decision you can ever make is to trust in the Lord. It is this great simplification of Christianity that many people find really challenging to say, well, how can you just trust God for that? You don't even know how it's going to turn out. No, I don't, but I know who holds my hand. His eye is on the sparrow, right? I, I know that tomorrow belongs to the Lord, and so does today. I know that no matter what the case is going to be, the best thing I can do is trust in the Lord. And the way that I can trust in Him is to know Him. And the way that I can know Him is to is through His Word and through His Holy Spirit because I trust Him. And it doesn't mean that the decisions that I make in trusting Him are going to turn out by the world standards to be great. Some of them are going to stink. I'm going to have to quit my job, or even worse, I'm going to have to stay at my job. I'm going to have to relocate my family. I'm going to have to spend a little less or take money out of here or not buy this or not do that. But I'm going to have to trust in the Lord. The scripture is very clear that when we trust in him, everything else gets put in its right perspective. If you have your Bible, I am going to invite you to turn to Jeremiah. And we're going we're to cover a large swath of things in Jeremiah. But, but I want you to just think of this statement. Just leave it there for a while. As I kind of tell you a little bit of the story of what's happening and catching us up to where we are. Jeremiah 37, 38, and 39 really kind of tell one story, and so I'm going to cover all of that as quickly as I can to get to a place where I want to go. But here's what's going on with with Jeremiah, and I'll I'll start with this. Jeremiah chapter 37, 1 says, Zedekiah, the son of Josiah, whom Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, made king in the land of Judah, reigned instead of Coniah, the son of Jehoiakim, but neither he nor his servants nor the people of the land listened to the words of the Lord that he spoke through Jeremiah the prophet. Now, here's kind of where we are. Zedekiah is the king of Judah, the southern kingdom, but he's been placed there by Nebuchadnezzar. And the reason why he was placed there by Nebuchadnezzar is that There was a drought in the land and a famine in the land, and the people had not been serving God. They'd been worshiping idols, and they weren't doing what they were supposed to do. So God sends the prophets, one of which was Jeremiah, and he says, repent and stop doing those things, and I will hear your prayer, heal your land, the famine will be gone, and all your enemies around you will be put back to their kingdoms if you'll just repent. And the people would not do so. And so they started to make these deals with these other kingdoms, one of which was Egypt, the other of which was, was Babylon. And, and Babylon didn't take long, by the way. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes in, takes over this, this impoverished, this famine-riddled country, and he takes over what's left of, the two, of the, the two tribes left of all the 12 tribes of Israel. And he changes Zedekiah's name to Zedekiah. Now, when you change somebody's name, that says, I own you. I can call you what I want. And so Zedekiah has this group of princes, this group of nobles, this group of of smart guys around him who they said, you know what? We should rebel against this king that changed your name and put you in power, and we should go broker a deal with Egypt. And maybe Egypt will team up with us, and we can take out Babylon. Well, The Babylonian king got word of this and didn't like that, so he put some more measures in place, right? And he lays siege to many of the cities that are left, including Jerusalem. And so the city is now surrounded. There's a drought and a famine in the land, and they're running out of food. And so Zedekiah is here on the throne, and he's trying to make decisions, but he's not making good decisions, and he's got a lot of bad people in his ear all the time just chattering the whole time. He's now... Spoken against the man who put him in power. And we've got a fundamental problem here. They're running out of food. They're running out of water. They go brokering a deal with Egypt who enslaved them for 430 years. They thought that would be a better deal than repenting and going back to the Lord and saying, I'm sorry for what I've done. I'm going to stop worshiping idols. Would you heal our land? And so what we see in chapters 37 and 38 are are really some interesting things that are happening. But I'm going to try to sum this up a little bit. Babylon hears that Egypt is coming. And so they withdraw the siege and they relent a little bit on Jerusalem. And so Zedekiah and all those talking heads around him decide, hey, we were right when the Lord said he was going to deliver us. Now, look, these Babylonians are leaving. Really, all that Babylon was doing was saying, come on in, Egypt. Come on in and break down your resources and get yourself intervulnerable. We'll take you out next. And so they back off. Things get a little easier in Jerusalem. And so Jeremiah decides, I'm going to go back to my hometown. I'm going to take care of some family business. And on the way out of town, one of the guards says, you're a traitor, Jeremiah. You're going to go side with those, those Babylonians that are running away. Because Jeremiah had been saying to them, God told us to to surrender to Babylon and we'll live or we can fight and we'll all die. And that was treasonous talk. That was treasonous for them to say that. And so they take Jeremiah and they throw him into jail and he's in jail there and they give him a loaf of bread and maybe some water and then they run out of food. And so everybody in the entire town is starting to starve. They're starting to get weak. There's not much left, so anybody who wants to come in and get them he's going to come in and get them. Now, God had told Jeremiah several times, don't pray for these people. Stop praying for them. They're not listening. Don't pray on their behalf. Don't come to me with a request from them anymore. I'm done. I've told them that I'm going to come, and I'm going to bring the sword and famine and pestilence, and anybody who is left will be a remnant, a graceful remnant, but they're going to go live in Babylon for 70 years. He's been saying this. Now, at this point, Jeremiah has been preaching this sermon for about 30 years. And here's where they are. And so they call him a traitor. They throw him in jail. They basically starve him. And Zedekiah, what does he do? He sneaks in and he says, Jeremiah, could you inquire upon the Lord for me? Could you go ask God if he would come help us out a little bit? Jeremiah says, yeah, I've already asked him. By the way, the same answer he gave us. Thirty something years ago, still applies today. Fight and die, surrender and live. Repent. Come back to him. Zedekiah asks for prayer. Babylon retreats. Jeremiah goes back towards his hometown. He gets arrested. Meets with Zedekiah the king in secret. God sends Babylon back to them. King gets a little embarrassed. is starving the nobles come talking to the king we should really kill that guy you know he's a bad dude he's treasonous we should really kill God's messenger a <laughs> genius plan the one guy that's been telling us the truth for 40 years and we don't like it we should kill that guy Zedekiah is not sure because he's a bad leader and he's vacillating back and forth between what decisions and he's afraid. It Literally, the scripture says he's afraid of these nobles. And he says, you know what? You guys do whatever you want with him because what Zedekiah does remember is that the shedding of innocent blood violates God's law. And he says, you know what? Maybe I can kill two birds with one stone. I can deal with the Jeremiah problem and then all these other talking heads that I'm afraid of that actually are below me but are actually ruling over me. Maybe they'll kill jeremiah and the innocent blood will be on their hands and god will deal with them well so they throw jeremiah into a well that had run almost dry and it was mud they drop him in there starving him no food no water just mud and it's actually kind of funny because jeremiah declares to them that you were stuck in the mud which is exactly where we are when we vacillate through decisions or not making them we're just getting no traction just stuck in the mud you just spin your wheels until you drop a little lower and you're going to need help somebody's going to have to come and help you and there was a guy named Ebed Melik, which means servant of the king he's an Ethiopian slave and he hears what's going on with Jeremiah and he goes to the king and he says can I rescue Jeremiah out of that well and he says go get 30 men and get him out and Ebed Melek does something amazing. He goes and gets some rope and some old cloths, and he very gently and tenderly pulls Jeremiah up out of that well by telling him to put those robes underneath your arm so it doesn't hurt you. Emaciated, sick, dealing with all the people that are out there. And we get to Jeremiah chapter 39, which is probably the most significant chapter in the entire book, because everything that Jeremiah had been saying from the Lord to the people, calling them to repentance, warning them if they do not do this, God's going to send an army from the north to push the pot over, as he says in chapter 1, and it's going to roll down upon you, and he's going to take you out and exile you, comes to fruition right here in chapter 39. It is the climax of the entire book of Jeremiah, in my opinion. (laughs) Even Siri agrees. It's the climax of what's going on. And he gets to this place. And so my first question to you this morning is what happens when you trust in your own strength, wisdom, knowledge, and abilities? Now the simple answer is this. It's just a matter of time before you wear out and realize just how dumb that was. And if you don't come to that early enough, don't worry. Others around you will come to that, that conclusion much faster. They'll help you with that, okay? But in Jeremiah chapter 39, verse beginning in verse 4, this is what we see. Babylon has come back. Now the, the whole city is, is in fear. In verse 4 it says, When Zedekiah, king of Judah, and all the soldiers saw them, they fled going out of the city at night by way of the king's garden through the gate between the two walls. They snuck out the back entrance. There was a hidden passageway for the king to escape, but not everybody else. They snuck out because Babylon was coming, just as Jeremiah had said. And they went toward the uh, the, uh, uh, Arabah, which is kind of a desert area. But the army of the Chaldeans, which would be the Babylonians, pursued them and overtook Zedekiah in the plains of Jericho. And when they had taken him, they brought him up to Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, at Riblah, in the land of Hamath, and he passed sentence on them. The king of Babylon slaughtered the sons of Zedekiah at Riblah before his eyes, and the king of Babylon slaughtered all the nobles of Judah. He put out the eyes of Zedekiah and bound him in chains to take him to Babylon. The Chaldeans burned the king's house and the house of the people and broke down the walls of Jerusalem." And then Nebuzaradan, the capital of the guard, carried into exile the Bab, uh, to Babylon the rest of the people who were left in the city, those who had deserted to him, and the people who remained. And Nebuzaradan, the capital of the guard, left in the land of Judah some of the poor people who owned nothing and gave them vineyards and fields at the same time. You want to know what happens when you trust in your own strength and your own wisdom and your own abilities? Bad things was no escape even the king himself who tried to run away the king of babylon catches up to zedekiah who he named and put in power and he says you know what i warned you i told you to stay loyal to me look every king demands loyalty including king jesus and something happens when our traitorous hearts turn away from the one who is the king over us whether that be an earthly king or whether it be a heavenly king There is an expectation that I do what the king says. And when I do, I'm in his graces, and he treats me the way that he said he would. And when I don't, he treats me the way that he said he would. And after all these years, in chapter 39 of Jeremiah, we finally get to the place where God is going to do what he's been saying I'm going to do. And he's doing it over and over and over again, and finally we're at this place. And it gets to a place to where all of the promises that Zedekiah had been given from Jeremiah, because by the way, the thing that really got him frustrated was God said, Zedekiah, you're actually going to be okay. You're just going to die in Babylon. You're going to be taken out of your kingdom, out of the land, and you're going to die in Babylon. And it upset him. And all of his nobles and his false prophets have been saying, no, 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 after two years, we're going to get all of our stuff back and all this going to No. In fact, what actually happened was that Nebuchadnezzar made sure there were no heirs to Zedekiah, and he killed all of his sons in front of him, and then he gouged out his eyes, put him in chains, and marched him back to Babylon, where he would live out the rest of his days, remembering that for 30-plus years, God was gracious to him and to all of Jerusalem and said, if you will repent... I'll restore to you everything, and you made the decision not to listen. You want to know what happens when you make up your own wisdom and your own knowledge and your own truth and you decide to go your own way? Destruction. Nothing about your choices is equal to God's opportunities. Nothing. That's why the best decision we can ever make is to trust in the Lord. Psalm 20, verse 7 is a familiar passage for many of us. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord. We trust in the name of the Lord. It doesn't say I trust in his army, I trust in his vengeance, I trust uh, in in all of his angels to come in. It says I just trust in the name of the Lord. What a beautiful name it is. We just got through singing. The name of Jesus. But here's what happens when we trust in God. Ebed, Melech, the Ethiopian eunuch who served the king, sees how bad things are are going for Jeremiah. He asks if he can go and rescue him. He pulls him up out of that that muddy pit. You might remember that verse in in Psalm 40 where David said, I put myself in this hole, and you took me out of here, and you inclined your ear to me. I can't imagine the sweet, sweet time that Jeremiah had with the Lord while he's stuck in the mud in the bottom of this well. Because in chapter 1 of Jeremiah, the Lord said, I will protect my message and I will protect my messenger. And so even what Jeremiah knew was, look, I'm in this hole right now and things are bad and I'm hungry and I've lost a ton of weight. But God said he'd protect me. And listen, you may not like this and you may not agree and it may not be a warm, fuzzy message. But at the bottom of that well was probably the safest place to be in all of Jerusalem. At the bottom of that well was probably the safest place to be in all Jerusalem. The back gate didn't help the king. The plains of Araba was not a safe place to be. I mean, just consider my ideal of refuge is to run out into the desert thinking nobody's going to find me or I'm going to escape. At best, I'm going to starve to death or die of dehydration in a couple of days. At worst, they catch up to me kill all of my sons and gouge out my eyes. The safest place to be was there. Jeremiah understood that. And Ebed-Melech understood that too. And the funniest thing was, the command to rescue Jeremiah came from Zedekiah the king. Because God said, I will protect my message and I'll protect my messenger. And all you got to do, Jeremiah, is trust Look with me in Jeremiah 39, verse 15. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah while he was shut up in the court of the guard. So he gets rescued out of the well, and he's now in the court of the guard. He says, Go and say to Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Behold, I will fulfill my words against this city for harm and not for good. And they shall be accomplished before you on that day. But I will deliver you on that day, declares the Lord, and you shall be given into the hand of the men of whom you are afraid. For I will surely save you, and you shall not fall by the sword, but you shall have your life as a prize of war, because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. Look at that last verse. Because you have put your trust in me, declares the Lord. something years repent turn back trust me oh god's not gonna do it oh man there's no bread left in the city oh the water's run up crops are dying oh in two years from now say the prophets god's gonna send us back he's gonna take care of all this what i find really interesting about this is that a slave who by the way remember when all the slaves were turned loose and then recaptured a slave is the one that protects God's message and God's messenger because he knew to trust in the Lord he believed in the message of a man that was stuck in the bottom of a well and the Lord said I will give you your life as a prize of war and I'm not going to take you into exile to Babylon. Even Jeremiah is actually going to get taken to Babylon. But Ebed-Melech, because he trusts in the Lord, he gets his life, he gets some land, he gets some vineyard. But more than anything else, he gets the legacy of saying, I trust in the Lord and my life is protected. Now look. 37 5 and 6 says commit your way to the lord trust in him and he will act did you did you hear that trust in him and he will act (laughs) hey nobody said trust in him and then go work real hard and hope that he shows up trust in him and he will act how simple is that to hear and hard to execute you have trust issues? Come on. Bought a new car this week. Hate that process. Always hated that process. I even go to CarMax to make it a little easier. I know what you're thinking. Oh, you paid too much. Yeah, you're probably right. But I didn't go through all the hassle of all that other stuff either, right? You know one of the most interesting things they do at CarMax when you pick out a car? They set you down and they turn a little screen and they say, here's the vehicle's history. You can trust us. This car has never been wrecked, flooded, in a fire, used in a crime or whatever, right? You can trust us. I made a several thousand dollar investment trusting in a screen for a car. Take it a step further. Because you've seen this on the screen and you can trust us, you can put your family in the car and drive down the freeway. You can trust in that, right? We trust in all these things. We have such belief in all these things. But the thing we miss the most is that when we trust in the Lord, He will act. It doesn't mean you have to understand it all, you don't have to get it all, it don't all have to click. But it's enough just to say, I trust in Him. So this morning that's my, my my request for prayer this morning is will you take the first step in trusting God and just saying you know what I'm gonna be honest with you I'm gonna be honest with you about who I am about what's going on in my world about the things that I'm afraid of about the things that I don't like about the things that I'm unsure of, about the things that I don't know about the people that I'm dealing with about my marriage about my job about my kids about my education, about all these things that honestly are really out of your control. They really are. You're going to have to make a decision to try to impact those things. But at the end of the day, will you take the first step and just trust God just by saying, you know what, I don't know what to do here. I don't know what to do here. I've tried this and I'm not satisfied with the answer because I trusted in my own understanding. But I think maybe I'm ready to trust in you. Because for 2,000 years now, a man named Jesus is still being spoken about because people trusted that he went to the cross, he died and rose again three days later, not just to prove that he could, but to give us the same opportunity for our salvation. And I trust in that. And that's crazy talk when you really start breaking that down. Why can't I trust him to make a decision about my job? Why can't I trust him about my marriage? Why can't I trust him about my finances? When I'm talking about trusting him with my salvation, with my eternity, with my soul. And so this morning I'm going to invite you to, to take that first step in trusting God and to join us for a time of prayer this morning. Invite the band to come up and we're going to sing a song, or, or Lance is going to sing a song. I've asked members of, of the Pastoral Advisory Council to come. Buy things that are not the way that they are. Listen, it's not self defeating to say, I don't know how to manage my own life. It, it, it's just honesty. It's honest to say, I've tried to manage my own life, and I guarantee you it's not as good as what God can do for me. So, will you take the first step this morning and trust God? Maybe you need to take that step and say, I want to trust him for my salvation. I want to believe in this Jesus. I want to know that no matter what happens from here out, for all of eternity, I'm going to be with him. Maybe you need to say, I need to trust God with my marriage because things aren't going the way I want them to. Maybe you need to say, I'm going to trust God with my finances because I, I just retired or I'm about to retire. Or I'm about to change jobs and gas is more expensive. My electricity is more I need to trust God with my finances because even in the bottom of a well, he provided salvation. Through some random person. I'm gonna trust God with my with my kids. Because I'm doing the best I can, but I'm only human and I need to trust God with them. I'm gonna trust God with my aging parents. I don't know what to do with them. I don't know, should I put them in a nursing home, should I not put them in a nursing home? I'm gonna trust God for this community that so desperately needs Jesus. And there's no amount of Facebook ads or door hangers we can put on stuff because no mighty work of God ever started without prayer. Zedekiah at least was smart enough to go in secret and ask for prayer. Church, I think it's time for us to start praying for revival and to stop doing that in secret and start doing it. you to come this morning as Lance sings the, the altars are open if you want to come and kneel